when you and I think about sin, sin, when we listen to or attempt to talk with the world about sin, we as sinners, and sinners saved by grace, we always run up against the limitations of our understanding of sin. We always run up against distortions in our definitions of sin. Isn't that interesting, asking sinners to define sin? Kind of a conflict of interest somewhat in there. (laughs) Our distortions in our definitions of sin, and, and we will always run up against, even in ourselves, an unwillingness to accept certain truths about the nature, the true nature of our sinful condition or sinful struggles. If you've been a Christian for any amount of time, then you know exactly what I'm talking about. You may have a conceptual knowledge of sin right here, but when it comes to living it out, walking practically, you find that your very best reasoning somehow can go right in the toilet. And you can fall into these distortions, can't you? This stubbornness and these struggles. Because of this, it is extremely important that we turn to God's Word on a regular basis, that we are with one another. This very book that, we were looking, that we're looking at now and reading through Hebrews tells us in chapter 3 that we are to exhort one another every day as long as it is called today so that none of us might be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's a real threat, isn't it? That our hearts would be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So we turn to God's word to counteract our limitations and distortions and unwillingness. So if we, turning to God's word, for example, asked the Apostle Paul, if we asked him about sin to help us in this way, this is where he would begin in in, in wanting us to understand sin. He would say, you ask what's wrong with humanity? Well, take a look here. They did and do not honor God as God or give thanks to Him. Romans 1.21 That's where Paul would start in any conversation about sin. How do we know that? Because that's where he starts when he gives us in the book of Romans his clearest understanding of the gospel of grace. He wants to lay it out as clearly as he can from start to finish. And what does he do? He starts with sin. And when he starts with sin, what does he say? He tells us this. They, do, they did, humanity did, and do not honor God as God or give thanks to him. And where do those failures lead? Paul helps us again. They lead to exchanging the truth about God for a lie and worshiping and serving created things rather than the Creator. When we fail to honor God, that part of us that honors things beyond ourselves, outside of ourselves, doesn't shut off. Oh, it keeps going. It's a vacuum that needs to be filled. And so we will look for something else to honor and worship. We will look for something else to bow down before, won't we? This is what Paul explains for us as he's giving us this progression here. 
And where does this lead, therefore, this worship exchange? It leads to, take a look, a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Romans 1, 28. These are the sins, plural, that we often think about when we hear the word sin. Whatever specific behavior, whatever specific vice might pop into your mind. But notice the progression here in Romans 1. This progression is evident in every single human life. Now think about why this progression is so important. An understanding of sin that is genuinely grounded in God helps us to appreciate the true extent of sin. It helps us to see that sin is not simply disobeying God. Rather, rather, sin always begins with dishonoring God. Whereas some would want to emphasize immorality, for example. Right? When they think about sin. Immorality. Where does Paul start? He starts with ingratitude. Hmm. That's not where most of us would typically start. Though some are good at demonizing certain deviants, all of us, Paul says, have deviated from the Creator's design and that deviation always begins on the inside of us since we were created to be perpetual worshipers. Did you know that? God made you to run full steam all the time in worship. That has not changed. You are still a perpetual worshiper. Think about what that means in terms of sin. It means this. If and when we are not worshiping God in spirit and truth, John 4.23, then we are worshiping something else perpetually. So the rule breaking that we often, so often use to define sin, sin is rule breaking, is itself the result of something broken inside of us. That inward idolatry, that spiritual rebelliousness that constantly turns us away from a life of perpetual worship and thanksgiving and righteousness before God for which you were made, for which I was made. Again, this helps us appreciate the true extent of human sin. Or to put it another way, this helps us appreciate just how guilty we are, just how wayward we are, just how stubborn we are, just how corrupted we are, just how, just how vast the case against us really is, just how far... We've gone in distorting the beautiful design of God and just how much we owe to our Creator in terms of stolen glory. And because every single instance of this betrayal, every moment of our rebellion and perpetual idolatry is against a holy and just God, against one whose goodness and greatness are beyond our ability to even appreciate every single charge against us is far weightier than our default estimations and calls for a just 
recompense far greater than we'd ever be able to satisfy on our own. Friends, this is the biblical, biblical view of sin that prepares us for our passage this morning. Turn over, if you haven't, to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. As I've done in the previous two messages, my hope this morning is to simply use just one verse to point us back to the mind-blowing greatness of Jesus. He's our focus this season in a very special way, even as many of you and Jan have reminded us the wonderful Christmas time that we think about Jesus and we're able to think about why that he came into our world and why he came into our world. And it's inseparable from, from Good Friday and Easter, isn't it? When we think that way. But we want to use, as we've been doing, just one verse that brings us back to this mind-blowing greatness of Jesus, the truth that Jesus is bigger and better than anything else. And that verse this morning is verse 14. Hebrews 10, 14 but to prepare us for that verse, we need to understand something about what the writer is doing here in terms of laying out his argument. Again, uh, this message, there's a lot of prep. I'm, I'm going to lay the path out so that hopefully when we get to that one verse, it will, it will all hit you. It will come together in a very powerful way according to what the scriptures, how they prepare us for that one verse. But to do that, we want to follow the writer's tact here. We want to follow his pathway. As we talked about last time, the truth that Jesus is the ultimate high priest is absolutely central to the book of Hebrews. Though this idea is first introduced in chapter 2, it's not really until chapter 7 where we're provided with a, a biblical argument for the priesthood. He's just kind of mentioned as a priest before, and we kind of get a sense of it, but that chapter 7, wow, that's where he really starts to unpack it and say, let me make the case. And especially what he's doing is making the case for Jesus as priest in terms of his relationship to the sons of Aaron. Who were the sons of Aaron? They were the priests in Israel. Right? Of the tribe of Levi, there was a special group who descended from Aaron, and they were the ones designated by God to be the priests in Israel. But was Jesus from the tribe of Levi? No. What tribe was he from? Judah. So the author has to explain, okay, how, is, how, how are we arguing that Jesus is a priest? We know where priests come from. They come from that tribe. Not that tribe. Kings come from this tribe over here. So he's explaining that in chapter 7 uh, in relationship to the priests of the Mosaic Covenant. The covenant God made with them when they came out of Egypt. But with that foundation laid, the writer in chapters 9 and 10 begins to explain how the priestly work of Jesus is far, far better than the priestly work of those who minister in the temple in Jerusalem. Now, it's really important to remember that this concept of priesthood, with all of its related features and functions, only exists because of sin. If there was no sin, there's no priesthood. There's no need for any priesthood. 
It exists because of sin. The need for a priestly work arises from the reality of our sin. So doing our, bre- doing our best to fully appreciate what we talked about a few minutes ago about the extent of our sin, think about what God offered the people in the Mosaic Covenant. God addressing sin by way of a priesthood. So first of all, take a look. First, he offered them, God graciously offered them priests. Priests, mediators, advocates to do what? To intercede for unholy sinners before a holy God. What a wonderful gift of God. Something they needed. Something they desperately needed. But there were several serious problems with these priests laid out by the author of Hebrews. He points these out to us. For example, chapter 5 verse 3 reminded us that such a priest was obligated to do what? To offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. You've got a guy representing you before God who's just like you. You've got a guy who's representing you before God who may not be having a good day, who may be in a terrible season of sin in his own life, struggling, straining against God, stubbornly going the wrong way, but he's going through the motions of his priesthood. Oh, okay. The ground is feeling a little less solid under my feet. (laughs) My representation before God. What else do we know about the weaknesses of this priesthood? We also know this in 723. We know these priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. They couldn't always stand for you. Somebody else had to step up, step in. There had to be many of them. Second, in terms of God's response to our sin, God gave these priests a priestly work. He gave them a priestly work. But look with me at chapter 10, verse 11, right there in our, in our main text area. We read there that every priest stands, how often? Daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Oh, wow. You see, even though sacrifices were made for the sins of God's people, we're reminded in chapter 9, verse 25, and you can scan back there. Between chapters 9 and 10, we'll kind of bounce here for a minute. If you go back to 9.25, we're reminded there that the high priest entered the holy places every year to offer sacrifices for, chapter 9, verse 7, himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. You sense the problem here? You're trying to offer sacrifices when you know that you've sinned. But guess what? There are times that you don't even know that you've sinned. There are those blind spots that every single one of us have, whether we don't really know it because of ignorance or we don't know it because we are in denial. We don't want to admit to it. We don't want to acknowledge our sin. So once a year, the high priest would have to go in to the holiest place before the Ark of the Covenant to bring that blood, to cover those, right? So the law, as we read in chapter 10, verse 1, for example, the law can never, by the same sacrifices 
that are continually offered every year cannot make perfect those who draw near to God in this way. Again, brothers and sisters, friends, please don't miss what's being emphasized about this system by the words that we're seeing here. Words like daily, repeatedly, continually, every year. As long as people continue to dishonor and disobey God, as long as they go on worshiping the creation rather than the Creator as these fallen, wayward, perpetual worshipers, every sin will need to be addressed with a sacrifice that bears the penalty of that sin and provides atonement in light of that sin. But after those daily sacrifices for intentional sins and that yearly sacrifice for all the unintentional sins, the very next day that dishonoring and disobedience starts all over again in your heart and in mine. Oh. The ground is feeling a little less sure underneath my feet at this point. The fissures, the cracks, I'm starting to see them. The gaps opening up. Third, God graciously provided for the people in light of their sin a system of priestly sacrifices. Can't talk about priests and priestly work without talking about these priestly sacrifices through which animals would bear the penalty of sin rather than people. Hmm. But, as should already be clear from the system's failings and weaknesses like we talked about, chapter 10, verse 4 reminds us very, just point blank, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Now, what does that mean? Well, he's going to go on to explain that. God graciously allowed for an animal death to help manage our sin problem. It provided a kind of temporary arrangement through which God was communing with His people and teaching His people. But the death of an animal, even hundreds of animals, even thousands of animals, even tens of thousands of animals, even hundreds of thousands of animals that were, yes, sacrificed by the, by the Jews, by the Hebrews, could never fully deal with the monumental extent of our sinful condition. It just wasn't possible. These sacrifices simply could not and never would be able to provide a full and final resolution to our incalculable moral debt to such a good and great God. So, the priesthood and the sacrificial system of the law of Moses was a grateful gift. Uh, Sorry, it was a gracious gift from God. In that, it taught Israel about the reality of sin, about the costliness of sin, about the possibility of atonement for sin, and most important, about the possibility but difficulty of communion between unholy people like us and a holy God like the true and living God, Yahweh. What a gracious revelation from God that He taught them about those very things. 
But as we've seen, as we've just seen, as the writer of Hebrews labors to point out in this book, this system, as rigorous and as comprehensive and as bloody as it was, could never truly tackle the massive, utterly massive problem of our deep and persistent corruption as sinners. So keeping all of these things in mind, these elements of priest, priestly work and sacrifices, and keeping in mind the colossal extent of our sin, listen to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 12 through 14. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until His enemies should be made a footstool for His feet. Here's the kicker. Verse 14. For by a single offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. (laughs) What? What? I'm going to read it again. I'm going to read it again. For by a single Sacrifice. Just one. He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That's amazing. That's astounding. Right? If you appreciate what the Bible says about sin, I mean, if you really get it, and you really get what God gave in the sacrificial system of the Old Covenant, and you appreciate what it could and could not do, and you appreciate it as preparation, laying the groundwork for this, when you read this, you should faint. Your knees should go weak. You you should think that maybe I'm telling you a lie because it's too good to be true. Brothers and sisters, there is no repeatedly here. There is no daily. There is no continually. There is no sinful priest. There are not multiple priests. There is not sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice For every offense already committed, there is no managing, there is no temporary arrangement, there is only a sacrifice offered by one, chapter 9, verse 14, without blemish. A single sacrifice offered for all time after which that perfect priest sat down. And that one perfect sacrifice was so powerful that through it, verse 14, He has perfected for all time, that's all eternity, 
the people of God. That means even though the extent of our sin was so vast, even though it was so persistent and so poisonous, on the cross, Jesus addressed for every single saint, every single instance of our cosmic betrayal, every moment of our rebellion and perpetual idolatry before God, every single instance, past, present, and future, full and final resolution to our incalculable moral debt. As we read in chapter 9, verse 12, He, the resurrected one, the undying one, entered once for all into the holy places in the presence of God, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood. To do what? Thus securing an eternal redemption for all time. Done. Completed. Finished. In the words of the Christmas carol, O come, let us adore Him. Amen? O come, let us adore Him. Now, as that's kind of sinking in more, as that's... God's bringing that down into the cracks and crevices of your heart. Please drop down and just scan, if you would, scan through verses 19 to 25 of this same chapter. Scan through those verses, 19, chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. Beyond cross-inspired worship. And that's wonderful. That's, that's where we have to start in light of something like this. Beyond cross-inspired worship, you will see there in, in verses 9 through 25 some of the practical takeaways in light of this amazing truth. Look at those. What are they there? Think for a moment about words like confidence in verse 19. You see that? Think for a moment about the encouragement in verse 22 where it says, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. I love that. Meditate on verse 23, that confession of hope. It's yours in Christ, that confession of hope. Don't let it go. And take to heart the let us exhortations in both 23 and verse 24. All of this, the call for each of us to remember and the call for each of us to remind one another, all of it flows from the reality, the mind-blowing reality of what our perfect and powerful priest accomplished through His perfect and powerful sacrifice. You see, the author of Hebrews knows that when you understand this, it changes things in your life. It should. That's why he moves from our verses that we were looking at and in verse 19 begins to say, wow, guess what? You're not on shaky ground coming before God now. There's no cracks underneath your feet. You can come with full assurance. You can come with confidence. And yeah, 
it's easy to lose sight of that. So, gosh, you guys, encourage one another in that. Because you're going you're gonna to lose sight of it. I'm going to lose sight of it. And I need you to encourage me. And you're going to lose sight of it. So I'm going to encourage you. And I'm going to stir you up for love and good works. And I'm not going to neglect the body of Christ. I'm not going to neglect the people of God. Because, because, because through Jesus and his body, there are the words of eternal life. I don't want to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Do you? I need my brothers and sisters. I need to hear these words. These are practical takeaways. This isn't just data. Doctrinal data for your head. Right? It's that, but then it's reassurance for a true heart. Full of assurance. It inspires confidence in you to live, drawing near to God in prayer, stepping out in faith with the people of God. But when it comes to practical takeaways, we also need to think about that final phrase in verse 14. That's our main verse. Go back to it. He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now, what exactly does it mean that the believer, believers have been perfected for all time? I can tell you, there are days, lots of days, probably almost every day, I don't feel very perfected. Do you? Man, what does it mean that we're perfected for all time? Well, in chapter 9, verse 9, flip the page or scan back over to the opposite page and look at verse 9 of chapter 9. The author there was clear about the fact that the old system cannot do what? It cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. It cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. But now look at verse 14 of that chapter. In contrast, the blood of Christ is able to purify our conscience from dead works. Old covenant was unable to do that. New covenant is able to purify our conscience. So what is a pure, what is a perfected conscience? It is a conscience not plagued by past sins, but cleared through the forgiveness that Christ has made possible. We can have a clear conscience through the forgiveness of those sins rather than hanging over us and plaguing us. Chapter 10, verses 17 through 18. Remind us how Jesus ratified that promise from Jeremiah, that promised new covenant in which God declared, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. And where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Christ, once for all, a single offering. Forgiveness has been accomplished. Forgiveness is now possible. But believer, listen, there's more to it than that. So we are perfected before God because we have been atoned for. But there's more here. Not only has Jesus powerfully perfected us before God forever by covering all of our sins, He is also powerfully at work in us right now since verse 14. We are those who are being sanctified. We are those who are being set apart. What does that mean? Well, look at where the author goes. Right? In the very next verse. Look at verse 15 of chapter 10. What does he say after he says this about us being sanctified? Where does he go there? He goes back into that prophecy of the new covenant by Jeremiah. From Jeremiah chapter 31. What does it mean that we are even now being sanctified? 
Well, it's the everyday outworking of this prophesied reality. Verse 16, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Ah, okay. I see why now the author of Hebrews is quoting this here. He's talked about he's talking about being sanctified. To be set apart in this way is to experience daily transformation in our hearts and minds. Isn't that wonderful? Because we know in talking about the true extent of sin that it's our hearts and our minds where sin begins. It's that corruption inside of us. What is God doing? He's beginning to rework it inside of us. Writing His law on their hearts and on their minds. Put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. This season, brothers and sisters, Friends, we need to celebrate the single and singular sacrifice of the one who came at Christmas. That's God's call to us this morning. That's God's call this season. To celebrate the single and singular sacrifice of the one who came at Christmas. We also need to celebrate the gift of eternal perfection that is ours through Christ. As we read this morning, give thanks for that. Saints, give thanks to God. Worship Him in light of that. We also need to celebrate the gift of change. That we are being sanctified by God's power through the Holy Spirit. Let me ask you this. Does it inspire awe in you? Does it inspire awe in you that Jesus Christ can take someone like you and transform your heart and mind in such a way that you become someone like Him? It should. We should be in awe of that when we know ourselves, truly. Let's praise God for all of these practical takeaways and pray, brother, sister, pray that He would help us to prayerfully consider them so that we might powerfully exhibit them in our lives. Consider how this impacts your life, these amazing truths that we are stirring one another up with by way of reminder through the preaching of the Word of God. And if you have not yet trusted Jesus as your advocate, if you are in that place, maybe you've been around church a long time, maybe you've heard all these ideas, but maybe this morning things are coming together for you in a way that you have just never thought about before. And you are feeling the Holy Spirit tugging at your heart, giving you that sense of your own sin. If that's where you are this morning, then reach out to the advocate, the mediator that God has made available to you. He is there. He invites you to come to Him. In light of that desperate condition of your sin and in light of the gracious offer of God to eternal redemption. Please receive the gift that Jesus Christ offers you today. For all of us, we need to go to prayer. Let's pray even now and let's give thanks to God for these amazing gifts that we've been able to walk through and remember today. Pray with me if you would.